We are, well, we were approaching Exodus 19 and Israel arriving at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law and the order of worship and the making known of sinful Israelites, the pardoning of sinful Israelites. And going on from there, we would get to a spot where we would have quite a bit of um, specific laws, um, social laws, relational laws from one another. And I thought, well, I'm not against preaching the Old Testament uh, in Advent season, um, but I am more for preaching Advent in Advent season. So we're going to take a break from the Exodus series, and we're going to do Advent uh, during December, but in between I thought it'd be good to go back to what we just celebrated on Thanksgiving and the cause for Thanksgiving. So we're going to do that today. So please follow along as I read Psalm 81 aloud. To the choir master, according to the Getith of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule for the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder from the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Let's pray one more time. Gracious Father, as we open up your word, we dare not lose the God of the word. Help both speaker and listener alike to have ears to hear you speak through your word. Of course, may your word be accompanied by your Holy Spirit who comes and implants this seed into our heart that would produce a faithful and a fruitful fold. We pray this in his name. Amen. So if we rewind the tape a little bit and have Thanksgiving in mind, I'm going to give you the most controversial free summation of Thanksgiving 
I can. Puritans and pilgrims left England and Holland and sailed to New England, where they would live a new life free from religious persecution. Approximately a year later, they would celebrate the autumn harvest feast, now considered the first Thanksgiving in 1621. That's the most succinct, controversial, free way I can describe the first Thanksgiving. Uh, For many, Thanksgiving is rooted in a moment of harvest and cooperation between two people groups, Native Americans and Dutch or English. We might even say giving thanks was grounded in the accomplishment of what man can do when they work together and what human ingenuity can accomplish. Far from biblical thanksgiving, our thanksgiving arises not out of an earthly country primarily, and certainly not over what we can accomplish together. Our thanksgiving arises out of a different historical event, a different rock, not Plymouth Rock, as nice as that was and good as that is, but the cross and Calvary. So the Christian's gratitude, even though we share in a Thanksgiving meal, we, we get full and then we get sleepy, having a wonderful feast before us on, on Thanksgiving Day, the, Christmas, the, the Christian's Thanksgiving is perpetual. Perpetual. Every day, we have reason to give thanks for what the Lord has done for his people. Not just one day a year, but every day. Now, this we know. We know we should be grateful people. We know we should. And unfortunately, our response to the duty of thanks is motivating ourselves and moving ourselves to some sort of ounce of gratitude so that we can be what we should be, which is grateful people. And that is working ourselves up to gratitude. I'm not saying that's completely wrong, but I think there is a better way. And Psalm 81 shows us the way of what our thanksgiving really should arise out of. We naturally look at what we have. You know, I might say, Kyle, you're not grateful. You have a wonderful wife and kids, a home. You have toys and hobbies. You have good health. Be grateful, Kyle. Be grateful. Yes. There is a place for that, but it doesn't usually last long. If I'm only grateful for what I have, am I going to be justifiably not grateful if it's taken away? No, the Lord shows us we should be grateful for him. And, and if he is the source of our gratitude and thankfulness, then really we should be grateful perpetually. I'm going to run through this psalm rather quickly um, today. I have three points. How God moves us to thanksgiving. The first two I'm going to go over very, very briefly. And the last one I want to camp out on for a little bit. But first notice here, our thanksgiving should arise from God's decree. Our thanksgiving should arise out of God's decree that he commands it. You see verses 1 through 5 there, you have these commands. Sing aloud, shout for joy, raise a song, sound the tambourine, blow the trumpet. 
And then you have a reason why in verse 4 and 5. Because it is a statute for Israel. God commands worship. He commands praise. He decrees thanksgiving. And we might think, oh, there, there, there's actually a better way for me to give thanks to the Lord than maybe through singing or instrumental uh, playing or anything like that or, or corporate worship. But God has seen it fit, uh, appropriate, that he decrees his people to be worshiping people, thankful people. So he decrees what is fitting according to his infinite wisdom. That's point one. Point two, thanksgiving arises out of God's deliverance. Not only does God decree what is fitting, but it also arises out of a situation. So in verses 6 to 10 there, we have a rehashing of what God did for Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. He says, I relieved your shoulder from the burden. Your hands were free from the basket and distress. You called and I delivered you. Kind of fast forward to the, the wilderness journeys. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O oh my people, while I admonish you, O oh Israel, if you would but listen to me. There should be no strange God among you. You should not bow down to a foreign God, for I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So here we actually have a situational reason for worship and thanksgiving. We should be thankful, happy, and grateful that we aren't in slavery. That's like, it's like bottom minimal level of thanksgiving. Here he is rehashing Israel's time in Egypt. And just as Israel had time in Egypt, and they are delivered out of it, and they are called to praise. So the believers call to praise the Lord out of their slavery to sin. But look at what the language he uses here. I relieved your shoulder from the burden. Remember the words of Pharaoh. Get back to your burdens, right? That's the master, Adam. That's the master, Satan, that he has for his people. Just work. Doesn't care about his people at all. You have a, a kind, benevolent, omniscient, wonderful, infinite, pure God. And then you have the enemy. He says, just work, right? I relieved your shoulder from the burden and your hands were freed from the basket. You remember the baskets full of straw. You remember how they were picking straw out of the fields after they were reaped, they weren't, they weren't allowed to go reap the fields. They got the leftovers. Something we should know about, given, think, given Thursday. We know what leftovers are. He says, I, I freed you from that. I relieved your shoulder from the burden. I freed your hands from the basket. In, in chapter 2 of Exodus, we are shown that Israel's crying out because of the infanticide of Pharaoh killing all these baby boys, baby Hebrew boys. 
They cried out in their distress, and it says here in verse 7, I delivered you. Your prayers went up to me, and I delivered you. I brought you, verse 10, up out of the land of Egypt. Why does God always say up? When he talks about Israel's redemption from Egypt. It could be because Jerusalem is a high point in the land of Canaan. And no doubt the Nile lower delta is underneath that. I think there's much more of a reason than just geographical name calling. There's something theological here. Egypt is down. Egypt is down. They're down in slavery. They're in the pit. And God says, I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. I I caused you to rise up. And I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Of course, we know what this up is in the New Testament. When we're given new life and we're raised from the dead, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places and we're no longer down in the miry pit, but we have been raised up. So we have a reason to praise and be thankful. No longer under the hand of the adversary, we're in the hands of the Lord. That's point two. So we should be grateful because God decrees it. He makes the rules. We should be grateful because we've been saved. We've been delivered. Lastly, and I think much more poignantly, we should be grateful because of God's disposition. Who is God? And what is he like towards sinners? You could answer the first question, who is God, and come up with an answer that is not all that helpful towards sinners. <laughs> he's holy, he's just. What does God, just God do to unrighteous sinners? He punishes them. That's not the complete picture. What is God's disposition towards disobedient Christians? What is God's disposition towards non-Christians? He desires to satisfy them. Follow along in verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel will not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate Yahweh would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. God is no cold, distant, indifferent deity. He is full of delight. And he knows the best for sinners is to experience the same delight. 
So he, he brings sinners into the delight that he has within himself, into the love he has within himself, and he, he shares that. Should we praise God and be thankful because God decrees it? Yes. Should we praise God because he has delivered us from our sin and the enemy? Absolutely. But notice what God does here. He doesn't just give a cold command. He actually reasons with his people and gives them an emotional appeal to see rightly, to judge their situation rightly, and to judge God rightly. Why should we thank God? Because God is so willing and eager to bless his people. He is so willing and eager to bless his people. We, we severely undermine the goodness of God. Look at verse 8. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, Verse 10, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Verse 13, oh, that my people would listen to me and that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. And here's the, here's like the crescendo. There's a pronoun change, so it's he referring, he is referring to God there. He would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, the Lord would satisfy his people. Do you see that? God is eager. He, he's, he's desirous to satisfy his people with the right kind of satisfaction. Now, we chase off to wrong kinds of satisfaction, right? But God says, I would feed you, satisfy you, fill you with myself. One commentator to this says regarding God, I am rich for all thy necessities, even for thy boldest wishes. Think about that. God is rich for all you would ever possibly need. There is an objection that arises when we read verses like this or when we read in the New Testament that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he, he prays and cries out that why Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would just but come to me, I would gather you like a like chicks under a hen, and under my wings, I would I would carry you to myself and coddle you, be with you, love you, be gracious to you. And the objection seems to simply go, well, obviously, God's sovereignty in all things is quite limited. Because if he really, really desires it, shouldn't God make it happen? I think there are good answers to that kind of objection. Uh, unfortunately, I think it misses the point of the actual text, not only in 
the New Testament, but also here in Psalm 81. The point isn't to prove that God really, really wants to do something, but he's limited by man's free will or responsibility. No, the point is God is ready to bless and we refuse it. He is ready to give and give and give and we're refusing it. Recalcitrant, obstinate, stubborn, not wanting it, thinking there are better waters found in other broken cisterns. But this is, this is the point here. God desires to satisfy his people. Now, just to take 81 a little bit in context, what kind of people is Israel described to be like here in, in Psalm 81? Are they obedient Israelites? Are they on fire for the Lord kind of Christians? Are they just zealous for God's glory? <laughs> no. He's not commanding obedient saints saying, hey, I want to satisfy you. He's telling those who don't want him that he wants them. He's telling Israel, I'm going to admonish you. I've tested you. You've been disobedient. You don't submit to me. You have stubborn hearts. They're disobedient. They're in the wrong. They're bad, mean, horrible saints. They are not the... <laughs> oh, the word just escaped me. The archetype saint. They are not the paragon of what sainthood should look like. Praying all day. Morally virtuous. They're disobedient, worldly acting people. And God says, I, I want to satisfy you. You're going down the road of folly and death. The end of that road is death. If you would but open your mouth wide, I would gladly fill it. Would you listen to me? He says, I, I would so quickly subdue all your enemies. I would turn my hand against your foes. I would feed you from with manna from heaven and the honey out of the rock. I love that phrase. With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. This is God's disposition. And unfortunately, we have a tendency, we're probably blind to just how deep the barbs of Satan's hooks are in us, that we would doubt that. That we somehow walk away from a text like 81 or really any passage of scripture and say, God can't be that good. There must be a catch. My bartering with men on this earthly globe has reminded me of one thing. There is nothing free, and if it's too good to be true, it's not true. 
And so we think there's, there's no possible reason. This can't be possibly true that God would actually speak to disobedient, carnal, more Egyptian-like than saint-like people and actually want to fill them with his own divine, wonderful goodness. That can't be. That cannot be. That just blows away my sense of categories of right and wrong and goodness and evil. That just cannot be. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That God is much better, much kinder, much sweeter and lovelier than we can possibly ever imagine. We severely undercut God's goodness. Look at these, look at these pictures here. He, his, his generosity, that God would give so generously, the quality of gifts, the most satisfying of gifts, all come from a heavenly Father. What is the chief title Jesus Christ gives to God in the New Testament. Judge? Alpha and Omega? I am? Sovereign? Father? Father? He is a good Father. Now, what are these gifts he wants to give us? What are the gifts that God would say, open your mouth wide, I'll, I'll, I'll feel it, fill it, if you would but listen to me, if you would walk in my ways. What are these gifts God wants to give? Is it marriage? Could be. Is it kids? Could be. Is it employment? Free country? Hobbies? Good health? 401k? Could be. But those are, those are lower shelf stuff. <laughs> it's like bottom shelf stuff, right? The gifts that the Lord desires to fill his people with are one and the same as the source. God desires to fill, him, fill his people with himself. When you read in John 17, when Jesus is praying, and, and look at how wonderful one of prayer, one of Jesus' prayers are. Man, you almost really wish all of them were recorded. They're all going to be that good. But he prays to the Father in John 17, and he says approximately in verses 23, 24, 25, oh, that the people would be one as we are one, Father. And the love that you have for me, they would experience. So there is an enfolding of the saints into the love of God, which is shed abroad into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5. So what are these various gifts he wants to give? Himself. Himself. Now, that can take the form of various lower shelf things. <laughs> But principally, primarily, never to be substituted, it is God Himself. So when we come to 16, we know that the crescendo of the psalm and the 
perfect meaning of this fine, fine gift is the Lord. Who is the finest of wheat but the bread that comes from heaven? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. You remember the, the encounter he has with the Samaritan woman at the well? And she, like any of us, like any of us would say, oh, I, I want that same kind of water. Can I have that kind of water? And we would think like H2O water. And Jesus is like so patient, so kind, doesn't scorn her, doesn't ridicule her. It's like, oh, daughter, pour that out. That ain't nothing. The Lord is the finest of wheat. And of course, he is the honey from the rock. And we would be satisfied with him. This is, as verse 5 says, a line I intentionally skipped over, unknown language to fallen man. We could debate whether it is Asaph or at this point in which God is speaking in the psalm. I hear a language I had not known. A language which we are not familiar with is the language of the gospel. It's the language of grace. Our sense of merit and gift, our categories for that are blown away. Because the gospel is a language in our sin we just don't get. And we will not get unless the Lord were to open our eyes. This is a psalm where God does most of the talking. It's, yes, it's penned by Asaph. He doesn't write much of it uh, from a human point of view. Most psalms are written from a human writing to God. This psalm, is most of it is actually God writing to his people. Let me show you why you should be thankful. Let me tell you why you should praise me. Not only because I decreed it, not only because I delivered you, but also because my holy and good disposition is eager to fill you who are lacking all things good. This is an unknown language. God, despite man in sin, or the Christian's deficiency of obedience, or whatever that may look like, eagerly desires to satisfy you. God desires to satisfy those who are empty. And that is why we should be thankful. Instead of talking ourselves up into a tizzy of, oh, Kyle, be more thankful. You're just a Scrooge. That goes two seconds, and I'm back to being ungrateful again. What does last is eternal truth that God desires to fill unworthy sinners with himself. (laughs) 
He desires to satisfy unworthy sinners with himself. And now you experience that by virtue of the Spirit's dwelling within you, which is only just a, a, a foretaste, just a hint. It's like that little amount of cranberry sauce you can only handle. It goes such a long way. I know the analogy breaks down. But the Spirit is worthy as a down payment now that lasts so long until we actually get full possession of it in the future. So in closing, where is the takeaway here? I think the takeaway is, yes, we should be grateful. And we should be grateful by listening to God. By being listeners of the word of God. Oh, Israel, if you would but listen. But my people did not listen to me. Oh, that my people would listen to me. How do you listen? Are you listening, listening to the gospel, to the goodness of the Lord with a awareness of some kind of like, you know, catch 22 or bait and hook or this is can't, this can't be too good to be, tr- this is too good to be true kind of thing. Or do you embrace the goodness of the Lord revealed in the gospel in a very strange tongue that even though we are completely and wholly unworthy of the Lord, he would, he would fill us. He would fill us. I'll close with this quote by Thomas Wilcox. Remember your sins and Christ's pardoning. Your deserving and Christ's merits. Your weakness, Christ's strength. Your pride, Christ's humility. Your many infirmities, Christ's restoring. Your guilts, Christ's new application of his blood. Your failings, Christ raising you up. Your needs, Christ's fullness. Your temptations, Christ's tenderness. Your vileness, Christ's righteousness. He is all that we ever would need. I pray we would listen well to him and see his willingness to fill us and then give proper thanks. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our good Father, we desire many things on earth, but more than everything, we desire you. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are our portion and the strength of our heart forever. Fill your people and do what we know you desire to do. Bless us with yourself. Amen.